I feel like the society can kind of benefit from why it's good to be rational. So it seems like we have lost that. It was almost like a common sense before that it's good to be logical, it's good to be rational, but then we kind of started losing the sight of why we have to be rational and why is that going to be beneficial to me and not just to other people, but to my life as well. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And boy, do we have a good one to challenge today. We're tackling the idea that smart leaders actually make smart decisions. Are you telling me brilliant leaders don't always make brilliant decisions? (laughs) Well, I don't want to name any names, but I think we can all think of a couple of guys that everyone thought were geniuses who just made some pretty bad decisions, like maybe investing billions into a product no one ever wanted or buying a company you don't know how to run. I don't know who you're talking about, and it sounds like you're trying to start some beef. (laughs) But Carolyn is right. We have seen a lot of executives making very irrational choices lately. Exactly. Not me, though. (laughs) Yeah, not you. Never irrational choices by Lindsay. (laughs) So I guess we could just skip this one then. Okay. I mean, I I might have made an error once or twice. (laughs) Just once or twice. But I do have a lot of very informed, extremely rational decisions to make today. So how about you take this one? All right. I'm going to take this one solo. Kick it off, Carolyn. Well, we are really excited to have Ukyong on joining us today on the podcast. And Ukyong is a professor of psychology at Yale and the author of Thinking 101. Thank you for joining us, Ukyong. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah. So I know we're here to learn about all of the thinking traps that a lot of executives can fall into and how to avoid them. You've also taught an extremely popular course at Yale called Thinking. So what are the big insights from that class and what inspired you to turn them into a book? So in 1980s, the economists started realizing that maybe humans are not really as rational as they traditionally assumed. So there's a new field created called behavioral economics. And they started talking about what type of thinking errors that we make on a regular basis. So I wanted to teach those to the undergraduate students so that they can avoid them. And then the course got so big right before the pandemic. It was 500 students taking it. And then pandemic happened. And then I felt bad about the long wait list and students emailing me, I can't get into your course. What should I do? And then at At the same time, my editor of the book, he asked me whether I would be interested in writing a book. And so we ended up writing the book. But more conceptually, I feel like the society can kind of benefit from why it's good to be rational. Mm. So it seems like we have lost that. 
it was almost the common sense before that it's good to be logical, it's good to be rational, but then we started losing the sight of why we have to be rational and why is that going to be beneficial to me and not just to other people, but to my life as well. So that was one of the points that I wanted to address throughout the book. Yeah, I would say that over the last several years, rational thinking has definitely been in jeopardy. So I could understand. It's a very good, proactive way of handling the chaos that is happening in the world is to write a book about it. Yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So I want to maybe dive in a little bit about some of those specific thinking errors that business leaders are most susceptible to. And I guess maybe the first one we can start with is confirmation bias. It feels like a really particularly important one, especially if you want to drive innovation in your company. So can you tell me a little bit more about like what confirmation bias looks like and how it works? So confirmation bias is basically, as the name says, it's a tendency to confirm what one already believes. And people seem to think that It's committed only by people who are self-righteous or narcissistic or, you know, people uh, who belong to the other political party, basically, but not me. But what I wanted to emphasize with confirmation bias is it is something that anybody can commit I can also talk about my own example from several days ago, but let's start out with a bit general example. So... You know what echinacea is? It's alternative medicine that people take when they have a cold. So let's say you have a sore throat and you go to the drugstore, health store, and grab echinacea and you took them for a couple of days and your sore throat is gone. And next time when you have a sore throat, you open up that bottle again and you started taking it and it's gone. Third time you try it again and it's gone again. So now... Mm -hmm. You have all this data, right, confirming evidence that echinacea actually cures your sore throat. So how can you deny that, right, when you're confronted with this kind of confirming evidence? But there's a critical piece of data missing here, which is that if you had not taken echinacea, would you have gotten better as well? So if that were the case, then you would have gotten better anyway, regardless of whether you took echinacea or not. And this is how many, many things work. So my own example. So as a person who's been teaching this for 30 years, during the pandemic, I was started working at home with the sweatpants on and my refrigerator was only like 20 feet away from me. And I could take a nap anytime I want. And so I knew I was going to gain weight. So I started treadmill. And a year later, I still gained seven pounds. And I thought, whoa, exercise is totally useless. It (laughs) probably made me gain more weight as a result. And then the next day, I caught myself and realized, oh, my gosh, I don't have a data What would have happened if I had not done the treadmill during the pandemic? I could have gained 20 pounds instead of 7 pounds. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of reasoning errors that we can always make on a regular basis, even if we have no bad intention. Well, I, I fully understand why you would have a confirmation bias towards like exercise is not worth it. Like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> There's some motivation too, right? <laughs> 
So what can leaders do to better recognize this bias and work through it? Here's an example that I use in my book. So let's say you're a company CEO and you believe that the programmers, if they're men, they're better. So they just hired only the male programmers. And obviously they're going to do a good job because they're hired, because they're qualified. And then when you see that, right, male programmers are mostly doing all great job, it's going to confirm your initial belief even more. See, men are good at programming. So it's getting into the vicious cycle, right? So mm-hmm. they're going to just keep on hiring male people. And this is how the sexism, racism, or ethnicism, all these things can perpetuate in our society. Mm. And the reason why confirmation bias is so difficult to overcome is that trying to disconfirm your belief is quite risky. It's scary. So if you have a sore throat and if you believe that echinacea helps, how can you not take it, right? Mm. And Mm -hmm. think about your marriage. For instance, you're married to someone and your marriage is going pretty well. You cannot divorce that person just to disconfirm your initial hypothesis. I mean, (laughs) you just can't do that. Mm. So in terms of hiring also, if you believe that men are better than women, then how how can you risk hiring women to that? So this is where the system level changes can be very helpful. So Mm -hmm. if there can be like a policies, uh, equal opportunities, and some kind of incentives to hire diverse population, then it can be a good way of overcoming our confirmation bias. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I've often heard that like you can't learn anything from success, that you actually, it's only through failure that you can learn. And in some ways, that is what you are saying here. If you are just successful, it's really hard to pinpoint what it was that was driving the success. It's only when you actually see something not work as well that you can actually really start to pinpoint what's driving the success. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way of summarizing. I might use that in my <laughs> next lecture. <laughs> Quote me in the next book, please. Yes, I will. <laughs> Well, let's talk about another one of these thinking traps then, which really revolves around data-driven decisions. So another thing that's incredibly important for executives is to be data-driven versus just relying on their gut. And can you talk about any thinking traps that can get in the way on this point? One way to think about these thinking traps is why we have them, Hmm. right? We evolved so many years, and why are we still making all these errors? And the main reason is that it's a side effect of our highly evolved cognitive systems. So, for instance, we evolved to deal with what we see, what we can touch, what we can manipulate with, some things that are concrete, something that's specific. We did not evolve to deal with statistics or abstract notions or something we cannot see or feel. Mm. So as a result, we have a tendency to be more affected by anecdotes or concrete examples, some things that are close to us, things that just happened in my neighborhood or things that happened to my colleague, rather than the abstract numbers of people who are unknown to us. Those don't feel real to our cognitive systems. Mm. So as a result, 
We can say, well, my friend's grandfather never wore a mask and he never got COVID and just ignore the entire data on why mask wearing is important for COVID protection. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So basically, one of the most important statistical principles to keep in mind is something called law of large numbers, which is that the more data, the better your inferences. So if you check Yelp and try to decide which restaurant to go, then you probably would trust the restaurant that got more than 300 reviews and the one that got three reviews, even though the ratings are all both very good. So the more data are more reliable to us. And that's basically the principle. Yeah, super interesting. And in some ways, even though I think the advice that you're giving is that we need to, as executives, train ourselves, given we're not inclined to be data-driven beings, that we need to train ourselves to make sure that we're incorporating data-driven tactics into our day-to-day, but also for us as executives to recognize that as we're painting a vision and trying to get people to get on board with what the data is telling us, that we almost need to revert back and figure out how we incorporate storytelling into that decision so that we're not just, well, the data says this, so we're doing this. Yeah. So there's one study, the participants did some survey and they received like $5 for participating in this study. And then there was this flyer that asks, would you like to donate to this charity institution called Save the Children? And the measure was how much money that they're willing to donate. And in one condition, participants saw the statistics of how many people in Africa are dying of starvation and all these numbers, millions of people. In the other condition, they're presented with just one story of a girl in Africa and her life story about it. And the average donation was greater in the one-story version than in the Mm -hmm. statistics version. So as you said, probably the most optimal solution would be to use both. So you present the statistics, but then also follow up with the story behind those statistics to make it more concrete. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's also move on to the next one that you cover, which is around loss aversion. Loss aversion, yes. Yeah. So especially I feel like with like the economy slowing, it seems especially important to understand the thinking traps around money, which is probably one of the biggest loss aversion categories. There are actually two ways of explaining loss aversion. And they also offer different solutions. So let's start out with the the most classic experiment. So there are three groups of participants and they're all undergraduate students. And one group, they were given their university mug. This is for you to keep, okay? We're not going to take it away. It's up to you to keep. But then here's a Swiss chocolate bar. Would you like to exchange with this? And 85% or 90% of the students would not give up the mug that they already have. They said, I would rather keep it, forget the chocolate bar. Now, the second condition They were first given the chocolate bar first. This is yours. You can keep it. Would you like to now trade with this university mug? And again, about 85% of the students would not trade the (laughs) chocolate bar with the mug. (laughs) Yeah, because whatever they started out with is their own and they don't want to lose it just by exchanging it. 
Mm-hmm. But then there's a third group, and the third group, they were not given anything at the beginning, and they're simply given two options. Would you like the mug or would you like the Swiss chocolate bar? And then their choices were split in half, of course. Mm. So maybe one way of overcoming this loss aversion is to pretend that you don't have anything to begin with. And then would you just make it like the third condition where now I'm making the new choice here. If I have to start all over again, which one would I choose? Mm. One of the best pieces of advice that I was given by somebody was, you know, a CEO, mm-hmm. like fire yourself consistently, like pretend <laughs> you were fired and you were walking in day one. Like, what would you do? Would you be doing the same things today that you were doing before? And in some ways, I feel like this is what you're talking about is yeah. you have to pretend in some ways, like none of the decisions, you don't have anything. What decision would you make in that context? I've heard a similar (laughs) food for thought. Okay. Yeah. So instead of divorce being something that you have to file and go to court and work, maybe every five years we have to marry again. Mm. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Then would I stay married? Mm. I just said, I don't want to think about it. I feel like that would have like much higher divorce rates. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's so many additional biases and thinking traps that we can jump into. But now that we know some of them, what do we do about it? Where's the best place for people to start? Is there unlocking some of these ideas? I think people first need to know how prevalent these biases are. Mm-hmm. So... My favorite one is planning fallacy because everybody has experienced this Mm. planning fallacy, which is you underestimate how long or how much it's going to take to finish the project. And there are so many hilarious examples in the real world. So like, for instance, the Sydney Opera House they ended up spending like millions of dollars more and 10 more years on a scaled down version, for instance. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the phenomena that anybody can replicate in psychology experiments. But when we are still trying to plan on something and trying to estimate how long it's going to take to do something, we still have this illusion that oh, this case is different. Once again, we're not using our past data and we're trying to rationalize it. We're trying to be optimistic here and say, this one's somewhat different. You know, I learned from the last case. I'm not going to make those mistakes again. But one thing, the only thing that's certain in life is that there will be always something. There will be always something. So for something like this, I found it to be actually easier just to multiply by two. Mm. And then if I have extra time left, then it's much better. So I wonder if what you're saying is that action is some of the best decision-making that you can have instead of overthinking. And, you know, I think the average person spends 37% of their time every day on decision-making is a stat that I have seen before. And that instead of spending all that time in planning and decision-making and rethinking that like maybe it's time to move faster and get the additional data that will tell us whether we're right or wrong. 
I would say that's underestimation. Oh, I, really? Yeah. I okay. mean, we're constantly making decisions. That's so true. Right now, true. I'm making decisions about what I'm going to say next. That's and true. That's true. <laughs> right? Uh, 100% of our time is in decision making. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and also, like, just perceiving the world. Like, what is this? It's the computer monitor. This is a phone. It's all decision making. It's 100% true. of the time. Yeah. But there are different kinds of decisions. So, Herbert Simon is a cognitive scientist who won the Nobel Prize. And his argument, basically, is that it's actually irrational to be perfectly rational. Mm. So let me use an analogy to start out with. There's a chess game. And in a chess game, there we know that there are a limited number of pieces and the rules are very well defined. And the players, of course, know what counts as winning or losing and all that. But even in such a well-defined game, the number of possible moves one can consider is actually greater than the number of atoms in the universe. Mm. So if you are going to try to consider all these possible options before you play the first move, you will die before you can even do (laughs) time runs out (laughs) exactly so herbert simon coined this new word called satisfice which is a combination of the word satisfy and sacrifice Hmm. so if you find something that's good enough for you then you should just stop searching Hmm. rather than trying to maximize your search for every possible decisions. And of course, there's individual differences in their tendency to maximize or sacrifice. There's actually some scale that you can take on internet. It's for free. And I took it. And of course, I am the highest score on the maximizer part. (laughs) And so maximizers are the ones who can't make any decisions about what gift to choose for your friend, Mm -hmm. what movie to watch this weekend. You have to just think through. It has to be perfect. And even if you're happy with your job, you might still consider some other business options and so on. Those are the maximizers. And satisfizers are just happy with their good enough choice. So they found that the college graduates, the maximizers tend to make a little bit more money than satisfizers, which makes sense. But satisfizers are much happier than maximizers. Hmm. It's because... When we are, maximizers always try to consider so many options and you get conflicted and you can't make, the more options you consider, you won't be able to make any decisions. So maximizers actually end up experiencing more regret even after they manage to make a decision. Although I'm a maximizer, I know there are all these problems with it. And I just try to say, okay, satisfies, satisfies. That's like my mantra. (laughs) One of the things that I just think is really fascinating that you talked about too, is that all of these biases or all of these, you know, decision-making traps or thinking traps that we're talking about actually are more likely to happen for smart people. (laughs) Um, Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 
Well, I don't think all of these can happen more more with the smarter people, but there are some, <laughs> mm. some that can happen more with the smart people. So it's not that smarter people are more de- devious or something, but they have this skills or they have a capabilities to solve certain problems in the right way, but they might not use it sometimes if it can be against them. Mm-hmm. So there's actually another study, which is not in the book, maybe it's in the thinking one or two, when I talk about creativity, is this study where creative people actually cheat more. <laughs> <laughs> My co-founder likes to say that she's the creative one compared to me, so I'm going to definitely throw this one in her face. (laughs) It's because when people cheat, they also want to feel good about themselves, right? Mm. You have to come up with ways to make it look like this is not really a cheating. You're just borrowing Mm. it or, oh, I've heard this excuse in an exam. Students feel entitled to cheat because the professor was unfair to begin with. So that's not really cheating. So creative people can be better at coming up with this kind of rationalization. Mm, yeah. And that way they end up cheating more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'm definitely going to be using that one. <laughs> the name of this podcast is The New Rules of Business. And if you could write just one new rule for business that would help us all make smarter decisions, what would that one rule be? For smarter decisions, if we're just talking about more general concept, then as we talked about, I think using data, relying on larger data Mm. is always the best way to go by. Yeah. Love it. Mm -hmm. Love it. Mm -hmm. And then final question that we always like to ask is what is the best piece of leadership advice or the worst piece of leadership (laughs) advice you've ever received? So I have a great advice that I received from book book authors. Mm. I have imposter syndrome. I'm actually all in stage four. I have a very low self-esteem. And so I read in a book that said the power you have over other people isn't the power that you think you have. It's the power that other people think that you have. Hmm. So whenever I I don't feel confident about doing something, I just remind myself, okay, it's just me thinking that way. Other people might not see me that way. So let's just get over this. So that's my way of kind of encouraging myself whenever I'm feeling low. The other one is this. This was from Harriet Lerner's self-help book titled Dances with Anger. She's a great psychologist. And she says women tend to be either a martyr. They just put up with everything. They can't say no to anything. Or they become a pressure cooker and just explodes. Mm -hmm. So they just go back and forth between the two. And when the pressure cooker explodes, people have no idea what happened to you. <laughs> you know, it's just mm. like you've been you've been so nice and you're all of a sudden exploding. 
And so the whole book is about dances with anger. How can you release this pressure in a more straightforward way while you're still capable of controlling for it? Well, I will say anytime that any of the imposter syndrome starts to creep in, you should just think back to the 500 people and wait lists that are trying to get into your class at Yale and feel very good about yourself. So <laughs> thank you. That was U Kyung An, professor of psychology at Yale and the author of Thinking 101. So, Lindsay, what'd you think? Uh, hold on. I am looking at my notes. <laughs> are you looking at the cliff notes of her book? Or are you creatively cheating over there? I am not cheating slash reading your notes from the interview. <laughs> it's not like I'm in fourth grade anymore and cheating off my best friend. There's just a lot to think about. So first of all, I loved the way she talked about how our brains just didn't evolve to deal with statistics because my brain certainly did not. <laughs> yeah, I think we both know that stories are much more captivating than numbers. But to understand the reason for that was really fascinating. So if you're trying to sell an idea, use anecdotes or analogies, as Lindsay is very known to do. <laughs> Yep. But if someone's trying to sell you on an idea, make sure you're pushing yourself to really take a look at the numbers before you make a decision so that you're not making a decision swayed by emotion, but by actual facts. Yeah. Use that law of large numbers. And speaking of numbers, I think her ideas for dealing with loss aversion are really applicable for leaders who need to trim their budgets, which is a thing that a lot of people are going through right now. If you want to make the best decisions about where to cut, imagine you're starting from zero. Yep. So instead of saying, what do we have to give up? Just say, where should we invest? Right. Just because you've been investing in some project or product for a long time, does it always mean it's worth it? And that also plays into what she said about confirmation bias. And you see this in so many companies doing the same thing over and over and over again without ever testing the alternative. In your personal life, you can avoid that trap through purposeful experiments. But when you're leading a business, you need to set policies that really prevent people from falling into that bias. Otherwise, you're going to keep hiring people who look like the employees you already have or spending money where you've always spent it. We're creating products that look like all of your other products. I could go on and on here. <laughs> and I don't want to fall into the planning fallacy because I could talk about this all day. And I know we only have one minute left. So maybe plan for two minutes. Hey, uh, production, can you edit this down by an extra two minutes? That kind of sounds like cheating to me, which, as we know, the creatives are more likely to cheat. And as the creative what? partner, I'm just going to call what? that out and reference it often. <laughs> It's not cheating. I am creative. And this is a very innovative solution. So with that, I'm going to close us out. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business. Very creative exit there. As usual, copying my homework. <laughs> As usual. Don't miss out on all of our chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante and you're thinking about becoming a member of the chief network, do it. Head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you will be connected with the world's most powerful network of executive women. 
Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Madison Lusby, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to the new Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. I didn't open the script in time. Let me start over. Sorry. Here's a hint. Your line is, and I'm Lindsay Kaplan. (laughs) Start over. (laughs) 